uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus is back up north in his home territory uh, around Capernaum. Uh, he has just been baptized by John. His ministry is beginning, and this is what he begins his ministry with, this teaching. Matthew 2 says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, okay, now, I think last week I talked to you about uh, the Luke account that is, uh, some say it's an exact, and others, I tend to say it's just the same teaching at a different time. Uh, that would be my go, but you, it really doesn't matter. So, where I left off is, this is commonly known as the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the definition of a Beatitude is a state of utmost bliss. That's what the word Beatitude actually means. It's like a euphoria. It's like a mental euphoria. Uh, a condition or a statement of blessedness. Like, things couldn't possibly be better. Now, we've co-opted the term, and in Christianity, it means the Sermon on the Mount. When we say the Beatitudes, everybody thinks that without thinking about what the word actually means. It sort of took on its own meaning. The Beatitudes openly challenge why we follow Christ, what we're seeking when we turn to him. Here, Jesus makes it very clear what we will and will not gain when we pursue him. Uh, it's a right-in-your-face opening uh, teaching of, okay, this is what this is all about. And it is, uh, so when we ask God to bless us, remember this, Jesus tells us here that he sees blessing as being poor, sad, and forgiving, which means people do things to you that need to be forgiven. <laughs> you know, when we would really say, well, I would prefer not to forgive anybody because I wouldn't don't want anybody to do anything to me that I'd have to. But Jesus makes it clear that these are the people who are blessed. I don't want to be the peacemaker. I want to be the victor. I don't want to hunger after righteousness. I want whatever I do to be called righteousness. And Jesus opens up with this salvo into all these things we believe. I don't want to be persecuted or insulted. I want to be, I want to persecute and insult for the glory of God, you know. As for the pure heart, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's it's foreign to me. Uh, I, <coughs> I don't only want to be blessed for following Christ. I want to decide what blessed is. I want to get what I want out of this. The Beatitudes spell out for us what losing your life means. They tell us the pain and the gain right up front so that we can make an informed decision about following Jesus and living in and for the kingdom of God. We often think of this as this beautiful poetry, but what it really is as a challenge right up front as he starts his ministry. We spend our lives uh, trying very hard to avoid being poor, sad, apologetic, humble, insulted, and persecuted. We don't want to become weak so that we can become strong. It seems counterintuitive to believe that such things would bring us comfort, inheritance, satisfaction, mercy, and a paternal relationship with God, and a grand kingdom filled with great reward. It's contrary to everything we've ever been told. All the things we're looking for are found where we refuse to look. And they don't come cheap, but they never leave once you have them. There's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Always Christianity without Christ. And what we've done is we've taken the word discipleship and we've even 
change that into something that has no cost. And Jesus is telling us right up front, of course it does. That's what defines discipleship. And he begins with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus begins by telling his own that the poor in spirit are blessed. Luke simply writes, the poor are blessed. The difference in wording must be addressed. Is Jesus speaking to the literal poor or to the humble? Is the question. Is he addressing our stomachs or our hearts? I, I guess is what we're asking. Generally speaking, it just as a general rule, of, when you have two of the same things being said, uh, the most instructive uh, of the mirror verses, the one with the most content, defines the meaning of the one with less content. So if it's in the same group, it seems to be the same teaching, then the one that says more is the one that you refer to. That's Well, actually, it's just kind of common sense, but it's sort of a rule of reading scripture and and the one with the most content is matthews where it says poor in spirit so we readily assume that he's talking about poor in spirit in luke too there's not a conflict in this case we must realize that what is true for the one is also true of the other so even no matter how you go with this uh, the poor people are often noted in scripture as being humbler than the rich so in a way he could be saying the exact same thing without putting the word spirit in there because scripture is crystal clear about the humility of the worldly poor. If for no other reason than the poor simply realize they need God more <laughs> than the rich do. Uh, Isaiah 66 two. Uh, just telling you this isn't a new thing. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So from the very beginning, God is always, this God saying, blessed are the one who is poor in spirit, is nothing new. <laughs> He's just reiterating it and saying it plainly and straight up front in one sentence. Uh, Vines uh, puts the word blessed this way. Maricosis, oh, sorry, Makarios, is used in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 and Luke 6, is especially frequent in the Gospel of Luke and is found seven times in Revelations. It is said of God twice, you know, that he is blessed. In the Beatitudes, the Lord indicates not only the characters that are blessed, but the nature of that which is the highest good. So the highest good comes to them. Speaking of inward blessing, not material, things like happiness, contentment, and peace, uh, Point by point, Jesus attacks worldly convention. The things that this world calls problems or punishment, he defines, or weakness, he defines as blessing. He's letting his disciples know right from the start they are not in Kansas anymore. In fact, they're not even in this world anymore. It is a quantum spiritual reality where the rules of function from the visible world do not apply. And he's telling you straight up, things are nothing like you think they are. Value itself is being challenged and changed. Uh, if they do not fully accept these new facts of life, of the kingdom, they will try to integrate the ways and values of the world into the kingdom. In other words, they'll try to, all of us, and since he spoke these words, we have been trying to circumvent them 
by trying to change them, add to them, uh, blend, morph them into our way of doing things, and it just it won't happen. It, it these things cannot be attached. They're a puzzle piece that doesn't belong in that puzzle, and you can't hammer it in. Um, the values of the world is into the kingdom, and they will wreak havoc on the morals and values of who? The church. Uh, diluting its power in and its witness to the world. If the church were to grab a hold of the Beatitudes, this world would be different. The world, we never really expect to grab onto this. It's the church. Uh, we will end up spending centuries making much ado about very little because we did not grab a hold of these. We try to take these and say, well, that's not really what he's saying. We get to do this, and because it says this over here, that doesn't really mean that. Matthew 20, 16, the New Order. <coughs> Quite a ways later in his ministry, he says this, so the last sh uh, shall be first, and the first shall be last. Uh the, con the drastic contrast between here and now and there and then. Uh, what he's saying is our reality is based on eternity. It's foolish to base your reality, your choices in your life on temporal things. When temporal is a click of the fingers compared to eternity. It's just foolish. Uh, those who know their lack of righteousness, those who repent are blessed. The humble are blessed, those who know and admit their sins because they are the ones who turn to God for forgiveness. They understand the implications of Romans 3, which is what Jesus is speaking. That's what this is all about, by the way. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we, for we all have already been charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. That's me. That's you. That's everybody you ever met. Everybody that ever walked this earth saved Jesus Christ himself. And uh, that is the reality that the Beatitudes address. Because we are this, the, the Beatitudes all make sense. What do the poor in spirit gain? Or perhaps miraculously, what is it they've already gained? Uh, entrance and residency into the kingdom of heaven. The same reward is noted in verse 10. Those who are persecuted for righteousness, that same thing, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So, our reward is citizenship in a place that is not ruled by us, a place where we serve another. In this world, that doesn't sound like much of a reward. That is until you spend some time in a place where God's kingdom has yet to come, a place that is strongly influenced by the will of man, by my will, and by our enemy. You don't understand, you can't appreciate the wonder and the glory of a place that is absolutely controlled by the will of God until you've been to a place that is not. And this place just keeps getting worse and worse because the more I'm looking at it, I think, the older I get, the more uh, introspective you get, especially about yourself, and uh, you start to realize that uh, what's wrong with me, and you want someone else to grab a hold of the reins, because number one, I shouldn't have them, and this world should not be run by us. But it's he gave us freedom of will, and that's what we did. A place where the king has permitted us to choose who we serve, a place where our first choice of who to serve has always been ourselves. 
The kingdom of heaven is a place that is completely ruled by God, including the spiritual high ground of all creation, which is the hearts of men. That's what gets changed. That's what's going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit and uh, the humble, that's them. Luke's account of this beatitude drives the point home for us by calling Matthew's kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God, which I've always said the two phrases are interchangeable. They're the same thing. Uh, this tells us whose kingdom is it? God's. Who does heaven belong to? God. You know, This tells us that the two phrases mean the same thing as they speak to the same cost and they offer the same reward in the same place in the same kind of teaching. You know, it's, yeah. The humble gain all the benefits of the rule of God unobstructed or unchallenged by human pride. Think about it. All the benefits of the rule of God unobstructed by my pride. There's a word for that. Paradise. <laughs> it's paradise. Uh, Matthew 18.4 about the humble. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's not poetry. That's an absolute fact. That's a fact of existence, eternal existence. Zephaniah 3, 11 through 13. And uh, brothers and sisters, I don't know if this helps you, but uh, this just, these first few lines from verse 11 uh, just fill me with hope. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all of your deeds which you have rebelled against me. Thank you. Thank you. Not only am I forgiven, they're taken from my own heart. Uh, I know what you did. I forgive you. And when I forgive you, it is so comprehensive that it won't haunt you. Uh, the shame won't be there. When you look back and you th see yourself at your worst, and maybe you haven't seen your worst yet, <laughs> you know, um, that is grace. Uh, I mean, imagine salvation without that. What, you know, for then I will remove from your midst your proud, your exalted ones, and you will never again be haughty in my holy mountain. And that See, when he says I'll remove them, don't think of it as him removing other people that are proud and haughty. Think of it removing your pride and your haughtiness from you. It says, uh, and you will never be haughty in my mountain. It doesn't say those people who I removed. It says you won't be. In other words, in heaven, pride's dead. And I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. And the remnant of Israel, which of course we know all these promises apply to us, will, no, will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. That's what humility does. That's what meekness does. That's what all these things in the Beatitude does. That's why it's so powerful. That's why you're blessed, because you get this. Feeling no shame. <laughs> to, and then having nothing to fear about your future that you will fail or fall. They, said they won't tell lies. You won't be deceitful. Your heart will be right. You will be a humble and lowly people and you will just take refuge in the Lord. <sighs> That's blessed.
that is blessed. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So if you mourn, you'll be comforted. We might say, well, if I don't mourn, I don't need comforted. Yeah, there's plenty of reason to mourn. Each of the eight specific teachings begins with blessed are, blessed are, is God's way of announcing who the winners of this life are in the next. However, what is noted as a winner in the kingdom of heaven is a direct contrast to what we consider a winner in this world. Mourners, people who are mourning, are not people we look upon and go, wow, they're blessed. The Beatitudes speak to the value system of the kingdom of heaven and how it's counterintuitive to the values of the kingdom of men. And it continues with the mourners. Jesus is telling his own, forget everything this world has taught you about success and happiness. The world is wrong. This is what's right. The poor in spirit and mourning. These are not usual bulletins, bullet points for a recruitment poster. <coughs> Come join our movement and be poor in spirit and mourn. People aren't lining up for this. They are the unbridled truth of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus Christ puts them right up front. To this world's way of thinking, if I have no reason to mourn, that generally means I don't need to be comforted. This means I'm blessed. I'm already blessed if I'm not mourning. Or, as the world would phrase it, blessed are those who have nothing to mourn, for they don't need to be comforted. This is worse than wishful thinking. It's a pathological delusion. Scripture speaks to the need for all of us to mourn. If you don't mourn, you're simply not facing the truth about yourself. Mourning proves that you're looking at the truth. You've seen the truth. And with that comes a word that should be very familiar to all of us, repentance. Uh, repentance is what comes from mourning. Ecclesiastes 7, 2-4. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. What it's saying is when you're at the funeral home, for a brief moment you take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Good things may be happening in your heart. You're changing. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. I say that in just about every funeral service I do. And because that's the time for it to hit home. Well, they're ready to hear something like this. Because they're experiencing it for that brief moment. Well, what this is saying is you should always be there. That should always be your heart and mind. Uh, you're better off going to a funeral than to a Super Bowl party. Come for the deep sorrow. Stay for the harsh truth. This slogan was brought to you by the kingdom of heaven and the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. Once again, come for the deep sorrow, stay for the harsh truth, and you will be blessed. John 16, 20 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. <coughs> and he explains it. He gives you a picture of why how this is working. Whenever a woman is labor, she, is in, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, 
and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. A little bit of grief now, a little bit of mourning now, brings joy in the morning. And I don't mean morning M-O-U-R, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, daylight. Uh, Revelation seven fifteen through 17 For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And they will hunger no more, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The tears are, that are in their eyes are from the mourning that they did that the Beatitudes tell us to do. Uh, our wounds are self-inflicted. We mourn not what was done to us by God, but what we did to God. That's what this is telling us to mourn. We mourn who and what we are and who and what we were. We mourn that we are the monsters in the story. And the law proves it to us and to me every single day. That's what it does. It's the job of the law to make sure that I know these things. Why? Uh, blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Why? Because well, God will do what no one else can do. He will comfort them because of this truth, despite this truth. How? By forgiving them, by freeing them from the burden of their own depravity, by taking off the weight we put on our own shoulders and putting it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. It's not just about mourning loss in this life. It's about mourning the loss of your standing before your God, the loss from which all other loss flows. Mourning sin. We are not the victims here. Get that through our minds. <clears throat> Get that thought out of your mind. That is what Satan wants us to hold on to. We are the offenders. Mourn this, and you will find peace. Keep claiming yourself to be a victim, and you will never find peace. The book of Job, the entire book of Job teaches us this with those beautiful words. I place my hand over your mouth, my mouth, you speak, I listen. You're God, I'm not, I was foolish. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, 9-10, through 10, Paul writes to the church, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. <laughs> Paul writes to the church, says, I am thrilled that you mourned <laughs> i'm thrilled because it brought you to repentance uh for you were made sorrowful according to the will of god see and we want to create a theology where that's not true where that's not possible uh, but there is no theology that's right without it. it says so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us what he's talking about is eternal loss he says, it makes me happy because this morning has brought you something good. It has guaranteed your standing in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. He said, I rejoice that you were made sorrowful. And he makes sure that he knows, you know, not sorrowful that somebody died or not sorrowful that your dog got run over by a car or, you know, or whatever they, a cart. And yeah, but the sorrow that comes about by the law and the conviction of the law 
you know, when David says, oh, how I love your law, it is a lamp unto my feet, it is a light to my path. Well, yeah, it's the path of truth. And, it, and that path leads me to mourning and may, being made sorrowful. For the sorrow that is in accord with the will of God produces a repentance, uh, sweet phrase, without regret, a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So, there, when the Spirit convicts you, and you listen, and you grab what it's telling you, sorrow comes. It, it, it has to, because it's the truth. It's not about anybody else. It's not about Hitler or any of these other mean, nasty, ugly people. It's about me. And uh, there's a repentance that comes with that, and God always honors it. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Man, does that seem counterintuitive. According to Jesus, the gentle people will be given the earth. It doesn't say they shall take the earth by force. It says they'll inherit it. And what is it you do when you inherit something? Nothing. Somebody dies and you get it. <laughs> That's basically how it works. It doesn't say you conquer. It just says it ends up yours. Uh, if he is correct, if Jesus is correct, which he often is about such things, it might be good to know for us to know exactly what he means by gentle. <coughs> because honestly, it doesn't sound plausible to us. Now, I checked 28 translations of this verse. Five of them, including the New American Standard, the one which I rely on, uses the word gentle. Five use the word humble. And 18 use the word meek. So you may have heard this as meek. And here's why I prefer the New American Standard. The Greek word is P-R-A-U-S, praus. Vines defines it as this difficult to translate root, para, means more than meek. Biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control. In other words, God controlling you. That is meekness. Uh demonstrating power without undue harshness. The English term meek often lacks this blend of gentleness and strength. Uh, so our word meek is still closer than uh, you know a few other of these other ones. Um, but gentle nails it. Because meek, by our colloquial definition, tends to convey a lack of strength and fortitude or a lack of courage, the term gentle seems to be a stronger translation from Webster's for meek. Deficient in spirit and courage, submissive. Gentle, from the English Oxford, having or showing mild, kind, or tender temperament or character. Moderate in action, in other words, measured. Effect or degree. Uh, not violent not showing strength or forcing strength, are not violent. That's a totally different thing than meek. Having it, but not displaying it. Whereas meek says you don't have it. Um, it is hard for this world to fathom how a gentle person will gain this world. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. That the gentle are blessed because in the end, they get it all. As of now, the gentle do not control the earth. Even Jesus said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. But be sure the time is coming, as Revelations 11.15 states, this matters. Remember this one. We always sing it at Christmas time under Handel's Messiah, but understand what's being said here. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Get what he's saying here. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world to Pilate, it would have been great to have the word yet. Because this is coming. And he will reign forever and ever. That's what Revelations tells us. We are joint heirs with Christ, and this is what Christ is heir to forever. We, the gentle in Christ, are destined to inherit this world. Why? Because it's his world. This is not easy to grasp because the kingdom of men has taught us that might makes kingdoms. That aggression takes what other people inherit. Other people inherit, you just go take it off them. <clears throat> this is telling us that our inheritance will be taken from the proud, from the powerful, from the combative, from the contentious. Not in spite of our gentleness, but because of our gentleness, we will have these things. And you know, for the entire time of man's rule, they have taken from the gentle. And what Jesus Christ is saying, I will find those people, I will take from them, and I'm going to give it to you, and it will be that way forever. Be, why? Because it was always God's desire for us, to the gentle, to have what is his. And it's all his. And in Revelations, he's going to let, remind everybody, it's all mine. It's always been mine. I let you play with it. I gave you free will. But it's mine. And you're going to understand that. And this is what I'm going to do with it. All these people that you treated poorly, all these people that you took everything from, I'm giving it to them. You know, uh, when this world becomes his kingdom, it becomes ours. Why? Because we're his. Not because we deserve it or earned it or anything else. In the kingdom of heaven, gentleness has the opposite implication of weakness. It is solid proof of one's own sense of personal security. I don't have to fight anybody. I know how this ends. I know what I get. I don't have to struggle for it. I don't have to worry about it. If I don't get it, I can relax. I have no need to attack or challenge anyone. I know exactly who I am and whose I am. <coughs> and I know that no weapon formed against me will prosper. I will tread on serpents. I am more than a conqueror and an overcomer in this life. I have been called to stand at the very gates of hell and rescue the perishing from their fate. I have faith that I am what God says I am, not what this world proclaims me to be. That allows me to be gentle. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. True gentleness is not a sign of weakness. Gentleness is a sign of security and confidence. It is not a fear to confront or to defend it is doing these things only when they are absolutely necessary. You know, doing things that uh, have to be done. Not because someone's challenging my pride. Who gets the earth when it's all said and done? Those who wish no one harm. Those who choose not to respond to evil with evil or force with force. They get it all. Those who care. Those who do unto others more graciously than has been done to them. Those who restrain their flesh, not those who feed and then unleash their flesh upon others, who we often, often venerate. You know, our, our powerful warriors, you know, the, 
Here's the thing. In the kingdom of heaven, gentleness isn't just accepted in some. The kingdom of gentleness is expected in all. It's expected in every one of us. It's what we should be. Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. See, because the spirit dwells in you, you have, that gentle spirit is there. And what he's saying is, turn it loose. Let turn gentleness loose. Instead of turning wrath loose or your anger or your pride, turn it loose. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And then he puts a little line, the Lord is near. Serious business. That's not just, not just telling you poetry here. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Um, this is a message to the church because, brothers and sisters, if we're not doing it here, we ain't doing it anywhere. This has to start here, in here. And those words are how a church should, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And it assumes that we're going to have to forgive each other. There's an assumption there. Forgiving one another, assuming that there would be reason to forgive somebody else. Well, of course there is. We're not done yet. We're still in the oven, you know. Uh, I'm going to do things that are going to offend you, and, you're, and I'm going to need you to forgive me. And vice versa. That's how it works. And also, this uh, gentleness is in the nature of our Lord. You know, we talk about the terrible wrath of the Lord and his faithful sword being unleashed. Well, of course all that's true. And of course, justice has to be dealt with. But think of don't think of the times when he did. Think of the myriad of times when he did not. Think of all the times when it would have been justified and it did not come. I mean, the fact that we're all still here. The fact that, you know, he flooded the earth because he looked at us and went, oh my, this just can't continue. And yet he kept us anyway. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Boom, 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 boom. Learn from me. And what does he say right after that? For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. If we learn from him, to be gentle and humble in heart. What will we find? What we're all looking for, rest for our souls. The turmoil that's inside of us. The things that we fight continually. <laughs> Learn it from me. That's my yoke. Uh, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Isaiah 40, 10 through 11. Behold, the Lord will come with might and his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Wow. That, that power of God. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. This powerful God, this creator of heavens and earth, the one whose will is done no matter what, what's he going to do? I'm going to tend my flock. Uh, I'm going to gather them all together, hold them close to me, and I'm going to lead them. His rod and his staff, think about that word, that phrase. His rod and his staff do what? They comfort me. A rod and a staff are meant to beat things with. That's what 
the shepherds carry it for? Not only do they pull the lambs back, they use them against lions, wolves, bears, you know, people trying to... St they're weapons. The weapons of God comfort me because of this. In the kingdom of men, might and gentleness are mutually exclusive. In the kingdom of heaven, they are bound together in the character of our creator. They are the reality that will last. God is both the very definition of might and the very example of gentleness. He is both of those things. And we'll leave off there. Uh, we'll pick up on verse 6. Any questions, comments, or criticisms? I have questions, but sure. I can tell us prior. Oh, no, go ahead. We're here. Um, you had a verse from Revelation somewhere in there that started for this reason, and I was wondering if we know what the for this reason was. Since um, I did, and I don't remember. Okay. I'll get with it. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll, do you have it? No. Okay, I'll find it for you. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you. I'll get that right now. Um, Can you repeat the question too? We put. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Kevin said when I quoted from Revelations, uh, it said it began with "for this reason," uh, and uh, the verses above explain what the reason was. I remember I read that and I saw what the reason was, but I don't remember right now. So he wanted to know if I knew what it was. So what I'm going to do is find that verse so that we well, so the Kev can find it and let us know what exactly it says. Boom, 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 boom. Revelations. I could just put Revelations in here and it'll find it, won't it? Instead of doing all the scroll. It's quite a voluminous amount of notes. Oh, for this reason. Revelation 7.15 is where this picks up for this reason. Uh, so it'll be before that. Okay. All right. Ex excellent question. Thank you. Anything else? Um, yeah, I have this... Uh Paper from Celebrate Recovery. Oh, cool. Yeah, I forgot about that, but thank you. Um, what they I did with the Beatitudes. It, I can bring it next time. You know what? Remind me when we start next time. Okay. And uh, going through this is adding a whole lot of depth to that. Cool. It is really making it pop. Fleshing it out a bit. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Good. Um, <clears throat> you, if you're wise enough to look at these Beatitudes and learn the lessons that it's giving to us, you can apply them to a whole lot of well, to and life, and is recovery about. is one of the major ones. And that's, yeah. That's the Beatitudes are meant for people who are looking for help, you know, and if you, you will not accept the Beatitudes until you're to the point where I give up. I, I everything I've tried hasn't worked. I've made a mess of my life. I did what the world said, and here I am. And so then the Beatitudes become something that you'll look at and go, hey, I'm willing to give that. That might just be the truth. Maybe the world was wrong. Because until then, it just seems so counterintuitive to everything you've been told, everything TV tells you, everything this world tells you. Well, and Celebrate Recovery applies it in such a wide range cool. of, of applications. Sure. It, of course it is. It, isn't the truth always applicable in a wide range? <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, it, it, you, it's the butter that spreads across the entire piece of bread. But it it really does. Nice but it's nice to see it actually applied in a specific area, you know. I mean, because what I'm doing here is a general truth. They got the general truth and applied that general truth to a problem. And 
Yeah. So please remind me uh, before I start to Next. to have you do that. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Let, yeah. It's that time. So well, if nothing else, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you, and as always, we thank you for your word. Oh, what a sweet gift this is, and Father. I thank you for these people who hunger and thirst after your word. And I just ask, Lord, that you reward their efforts and their, um, uh, their trying to find you by actually finding you. Uh, let your word find a home in their hearts and change them. And just bless them, Lord. And help them to become part of the solution of the kingdom of God and no longer a problem in this world. Watch over them, protect them, and bless them. Make them strong, make them wise, make them compassionate, and help them to glorify your name in whatever they think, whatever they do, and whatever they say. In Jesus' name, amen.